Listener Production. I've always held the view that us business owners can learn plenty about marketing and customer experience from the owners of five-star restaurants. To test my theory, I contacted Australia's leading restaurateur in Guy Grossi. And let me tell you, team, he does not let us down. It's a yum diddly scrumptious episode 550 of the 12-year-old award-winning Small Business Big Marketing Podcast. And welcome back to your weekly dose of mouthwatering marketing. I'm your host, Timbo Reed. You infinitely more importantly, are a motivated business owner ready to crank out some great marketing to build that beautiful business of yours into the empire it absolutely deserves to be. Big show today, celebrity chef and Australia's most celebrated restaurant owner, Guy Grossi, joins us. We hear from a listener who contacted the hotline, plus I've got some very big news for all you Pink Floyd fans amongst us. Yes, Pink Floyd. As per usual, team, There's marketing G-O-L-D dripping from the ceiling over here at Small Business Big Marketing's HQ. So let's get stuck right in. One area of marketing that fascinates and excites me more than most is the creation of a memorable customer experience. I just love them. One that makes customers go wow and tell their friends for all the right reasons. Sadly, in my experience, this doesn't happen anywhere near enough. But one industry in which it does happen often is in five-star restaurants and resorts. It's really their bread and butter, given their customers are paying big dollars to be constantly swept off their feet. So who better to ask how to create a memorable customer experience than Australia's most well-known restaurateur in Guy Grossi, who owns and continues to work in amazing establishments like Florentino, Australia's oldest restaurant. It's 120 years old. Like, Guy's not that old. He bought it, you know, a few years ago. And he also uh, owns and runs Ombra Salumi Bar in Melbourne's Collins Street, where I went a couple of nights ago and hoed down on the world's best pizza. OMG. Or is it hashtag OMG? Guy's also the author of four beautiful cookbooks and has hosted TV shows such as Food Safari and Iron Chef Australia. Guy literally is an Australian institution. So pen and paper at the ready team as Guy explains how to create a five-star customer experience, how to handle annoying customers, how to successfully launch a restaurant and plenty more. Oh, and he shares a recipe that will make your mouth water if you like fettuccine carbonara. (laughs) Now, if you're thinking right now, I'm not in hospitality, so this episode is irrelevant to me, Timbo. Well, all I can say to that is you're wrong. I started off by asking Guy what he loves about what he does. There's a few different things, Tim, but I think if I had to put it down to one thing, it's the satisfaction of seeing somebody who's enjoying your product, what you do, the end user. You know, when you see that you get the feedback and you get, you know, the rolling of the eyes when they put something in their mouth and taste it and, you know, it's like mamma mia, you know, that experience of something just so delicious um, and just the the whole experience of, of, of having somebody leave your place 
complimenting you and satisfied with what you've done for them and not only satisfied but kind of blown away with what you've done for them. That feeling is hard to match, I reckon, in many industries and we're lucky that in our world that we're able to get that firsthand. That's coming from a gentleman who has a number of restaurants, who has a business empire, but you are still finding yourself on the floor most evenings being able to observe that? Absolutely. Like, uh, well, I'm there every day when we're open, like six days a week. Um, Florentino? Mainly Florentino, but I go, our hub is quite small. So we've got our little bar out the back, Arlequin, which isn't reopened yet, but it will be very soon. I'm happy to report. And that's a beautiful little late night bar, which is a great little spot. Always lots of happy people in there. And we've got Ombre, our little salumi bar next door to Florentino. And Florentino is comprised of our sort of luxe product upstairs, the upstairs restaurant. And we've got the grill and the cellar bar. And each day I'm there. These days, I have to say, I'm I'm doing less nights than what I used to once upon a time. But I'm there every day and I'm in in the kitchen with my brother-in-law. And we cook away. We get a lot of the prep out of the way and do all that. It's it's very satisfying seeing produce come in. Like um, Joe just today just brought us these beautiful pine mushrooms that she's been collecting. Um, You know, we get foragers that go out and get beautiful bush herbs and things like that. And just seeing stuff like that come in the door is really exciting. It's inspirational. It helps you create dishes and all go back to old dishes while we haven't done that for a while, you know, that sort of thing. So I do get to observe that. I talk to my people. I go out and see customers and talk to them. We had a lovely little event today for lunch upstairs, which I had to speak at, which was nice to do. And they were having a good time. So it's it's really good to get that firsthand kind of feedback. How do you just stay so micro involved? Because as a business owner like you, it'd be so easy to be pulled back, you know, up the chain and have that constantly that macro need to manage the sort of strategic part of the business. But you are yeah. Well, I do that. I'm lucky I have family. Um, So my sister's involved in the business. My wife's involved in the business. My son and my daughter are now involved in the business. We've got a brother-in-law. So what I'm best at Italians. We're, we're definitely are Italians. Well, my brother-in-law is actually Spanish. He's of Spanish he? origin. A but, ringing. But not, yeah, ringing, but not far, you know. Yeah. It's, it's quite close in culture as, as well as in um, distance, in geography. It is good to have the family around you and that sort of support. And, you know, we all have our areas where we're good at. And I think operations for me is where I like to be. I like the action. So yeah. to pull me out and sit me down behind a desk, I'll do that when I need to, but I, I can't do that five days a week or six days a week. I have to be involved in, you know, the operations and the planning of the menus and, you know, testing the recipes and saying, hey, guys, maybe this needs a little bit more of that or need a bit more of that. You live an incredible life, Guy. You have, you own the oldest restaurant in Australia. You own some beautiful restaurants. You've written cookbooks. You cook from some amazing people, I'm sure. It's just a a rich life. Is there a moment that stands out? I'm sure there are many, but right now, as I ask you this question, one moment that stands out where you go, my goodness, this is a good life. I think there's been many of those, plenty of those. Um, I've been lucky to have the opportunity to travel with my work and, and you know, see some amazing things, travel to some amazing destinations, work in some wonderful locations. If I had to pick a moment, there was a, a travel time that I did with my wife and my son, Carlo, in November, not of last year, the year before, and we went to some amazing spots um, just exploring food of other countries and so forth. And that was a, a real special time, especially I think I remember that because as soon as that kind of happened, it was very shortly after that, that everything sort of blew up and mm-hmm. turned the whole COVID thing got turned on. So I think it, it's the last memory I had of 
that kind of beautiful lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Let's talk COVID. It hasn't been very kind to your industry at all. There's a couple of things I've heard you talk about previously, though. One is that you started a delivery business within three weeks, which would normally, I think you said, take 18 months. Isn't it amazing what business owners have been able to achieve in such a short amount of time? Does that mean, you know, you along with others have just been slow in making change when change was necessary? And then when it's forced upon us, we can act like that? I think there's a couple of things in that. One, yes, I think we might be slow in the sense that, you know, you're kind of putting things on the back burner because you're busy. Oh, we'll do that next week. We'll deal with that next month. When you're in a situation where you either, you know, move or starve, I think, you know, Mm. it changes your, your mindset a lot and you're just in a position where you're under pressure. Now, that business that we started and, and Loredana, my daughter, was really heavily involved, as was the whole family, but she was kind of the, driving force behind it with making the website and building this and building the online shop and doing all that sort of stuff. We were very lucky. We had some really good supporters like my photographer, Mark Chu, came in and shot food for free and all that sort of stuff just so he could help us get a leg up. Amazing support from suppliers who we owed lots of money to, by the way, but guy, just keep buying, keep buying. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. So all of that stuff was really positive and really good. And then the idea, the prospect of getting this up and running, lots of energy, very positive in a very negative time, Mm -hmm. which was great for the psyche as well, and bringing back people from our team. Yes. And again, the psyche, the people sitting at home, not knowing what's going to happen next, not knowing where this is going to end up, where this is going to go. Once we got them back in cars, delivering food, cooking food, cleaning things, doing stuff, then the whole psyche started to change and everybody got more positive again. So- Yeah, it was a short turnaround. I think we did a brilliant job in the short amount of time allocated. But to answer your question, we probably would have vetted it a lot more Mm -hmm. if we were just developing it from from scratch for a product during a peacetime. We would have gone, scrutinized it, but it was like, yep, it's good, let's roll. And that's how it went. Do you think you'll go back to your old ways or do you think it's the the new way of innovating and bringing ideas to market? I think we've learnt a lot from what's happened. Nobody really wants to go back to the old ways. I think that's a probably a counterproductive thing Mm. for business. I think the idea of evolution, evolving and, you know, seeing that you can do something in a short amount of time rather than waiting and going through. I I think these days we're thinking, you know, if it's not perfect right away, just roll, keep going. As long as you're not affecting the end user, as long as you're, you know, doing a good job for them, Mm -hmm. which is so important, Mm -hmm. and, and you're looking after your suppliers and your people and everyone along the way, as long as you tick those boxes, Mm -hmm. then just keep rolling and keep going. You know, some of these business, Apple have been doing this for years. Like, you know, when you buy an Apple, I don't know whether you're an Apple guy or not, doesn't matter. I am, I have an iPhone in my pocket. But you know, there's software updates, they're coming through all the time. Apple get their product to market. It's not perfect. No. They wait for feedback, mm. make an alteration, then give a software update. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they wait yeah. until it's perfect. Nothing can happen. No, well, so, this is the thing. There's no such thing as perfection. So you cannot get it just right and then release it. You've got to keep rolling and improve and improve and improve. And the whole idea that, you know, you've got a business which is perfect and that's how it's going to sit for the next 10 years, that's got to be the worst thing How, for how do you manage that guy? Because you are running, let's talk about Florentino. Now, for those who aren't, you know, in Melbourne or in Australia, you know, Florentino is one of our leading restaurants. It's five star. It's 
what, describe it for us. You know, well, like, there's diff- as I said before, there's dis- different aspects. So we well, the, have, the Florentino. The Florentino we- restaurant is, well, I'm going to call it a fine diner. Fine um, diner. We try not to make it stuffy. We try and keep it very personable. I believe dining at a luxurious end of the marketplace needs to be open and genuine and personable. The, you know, the whole idea of people looking down on guests is antiquated and out the window. So that's- Not in really, 83, really. Well, well that, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so that needs to be, be maintained. And it's quite easy for people, especially people working at that level, to get a little cocky. So it, it is really, you know, the job of the establishment and the, and the team to bring us all down, you know, be humble. We've got yes. to have humility. We've got to have this genuine, cohesive way of working together as a team and have that humble humility. It's so, really important for so, hospitality. So, so my question around that was around perfection, which is people coming to Florentino have a high expectation, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. Putting aside your your regulars and people who know what to expect and what it is and what they love mm-hmm. about it, but the first timer is coming with a very high expectation. They know they're going to pay top dollar. So how do you manage, therefore, perfection? Because you'd be a sort of almost a fear amongst chefs and yourself, and I know there isn't, but there's like, we really have to be perfect here. Otherwise, we're going to get complaints. I think, Tim, like you said, I know there isn't, but I I believe I get a bit nervous before every service. I love hearing that. And I think um, if- I get nervous before every interview. Well, absolutely. If you would not be good at your job if you didn't, I believe. I I believe people who say, oh, no, I'm full of confidence and whatever, that that is cocky. Mm -hmm. I think a little bit of stage fright, you know, you don't want to go to pieces, obviously, you've got to be in control, but a little bit of stage fright is a good thing to get the adrenaline going, keep you on your toes and make sure that you are ticking every box and you are looking at every checkpoint, every guest contact point is being checked off properly and is being done properly. And if you're not doing that, you drop the ball, you know. It's simple things, even down to toilet checks, making sure that the bathrooms are in good condition for every guest to go into and find, wow, this is a lovely kept bathroom, not you know, mm-hmm. cloths all over the place and stuff like that. Just little details are so important in the big makeup of that experience. And we talked about this whole thing of the experience. You know, food and beverage is just one component of what we do. It really is. And for a restaurant like Florentino, it is so important that we've got those people for two to three hours. We've got to capture every moment and make sure that we make it a great experience. Um, I, I, we're going to talk about customer experience. There's going to be an amazing discussion because uh, it's a it's a topic very close to my heart and a topic that not enough small business owners, no matter what industry they're in, pay attention to. And I'll come back to one percenters. We're talking about COVID. Another thing that you did during that time, I don't know whether you brought it together, but you're a part of 35 CBD restaurateurs that came together to do what? And what outcome? Because you, the, you're, you're competitors. Yeah, absolutely competitors, but also friends. We live in a competitive marketplace. We live in a competitive world. I guess that's part of what keeps us good at what we do. We don't want to have a Melbourne that has mediocre restaurants. We want the competition. We want restaurants to be fantastic in Melbourne. We've built that reputation over time. And it's not just our restaurant. There's many other beautiful, amazing restaurants out there and there's more coming along. So, but yep. it took a pandemic to pull 35 well, of you together. To- I think we were always friendly, but what it did was 
created this incredible cohesion amongst competitors. I would hate for that to ever go away again. I've never seen us so strongly united as we have been over the last 12 months or so. It was, um, you know, great people were involved. What were you doing? Were you meeting around a table? Were you we, Well, we couldn't meet Zooming? around the table at mo- most times. So it was Zooms, it was chat rooms. It was just getting together and talking and exchanging information. This is what we're doing. This is what we're doing. Was there a caginess about it? No, not at all. Everyone was very open. Everyone was very helpful. Everyone was sharing information of what they were doing. Everyone was giving comment on what was going on in in the marketplace, in the media, using media to do interviews, to get our message across, all that sort of stuff. So it was absolutely fantastic. And, you know, I'd like to see that live on beyond this because, you know, there's all sorts of benefits that come from that. We've realized that it's much better to be open with your competitors rather than try and hide and and so we're doing this, don't let them know. I think The War of Arts is uh, The Art of War. They're both good books. The Art of War is Know Your Enemy. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know? That's a great book. It is a great book. War of Arts better. It's about procrastination. Well, we don't like that, do we? <laughs> I don't know. No. I'm still deciding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me, um, yeah, COVID, you, you've got, you pulled all your competitors together. You thought that was quite funny, didn't you? Thank I, you. I, I like it. I like guy, it. guy Gross is in for butter. It's I fantastic. Like it. I like it. Um, you pulled 35 restaurateurs together. You've created a delivery service. COVID also led to the closing of Merchant, an 11-year-old restaurant in the, in the beautiful True, Alto very Tower sad. of yep. Melbourne. Very how, sad. How, how, how did you deal with it and how are you about that? It was a sad time to let that go. But down that end of town, we felt that it was going to be really challenging mm. to reopen without the business you know, and the people in the city. We were there for 11 years. It was very successful. We enjoyed the time with our partner, Lorenz Grollo. It was fantastic. And we had a lot of happy customers come through there and the team that we built there was great. Some of them have come back into the fold, but a lot of them have gone on to do great things. One of my chefs, um, Daniel Arafarula, who's a fantastic chef and worked for the, has worked with the family for in excess of 20 years, was the chef down there from day one. And he's actually gone to work for a private home now. Um, so he's the chef wow. in a private home. Yeah. And it's fantastic. He was a bit concerned about letting me know that that's what he'd been offered and that's what he wanted to go and do. And I said to him, Daniel, if you don't take that position, I'll apply for it. It's fantastic. <laughs> you know, you've got to do it. And, yeah. you know, you, and he'd reached that point in his career where he was ready for that kind of change. So, you know, some positive things came out of it, but also it was quite sad to let it go. It was a brilliant concept. It worked really well for those 11 years, but alas, you know, it was time to let it go. And I think in times like this, you've got to be prepared to make changes and that's one of the, I guess, one of the sad changes we had to make, but we had to do it in order to preserve the mothership and have the concentration of of our people working on the results that we need for right now. Mm-hmm. And that's another thing that's been really difficult is rebuilding the team because mm-hmm. a lot of people went away, they went home, especially the migrant workers. In Victoria, we were closed for so long that a lot of, you know, the youth sort yeah. of went up north, either to New South Wales or, or Queensland. Um, so it's been tough rebuilding our team. Well, I can tell you, they didn't go to Queen- I live in Noosa and they didn't go to Noosa. They're struggling to get stuff. Are they really? Really well, struggling well, to get stuff. Well, it must be across the board then. Yeah, it's, totally. And it's one of those things that has been, I think, one of the toughest things because as we've reopened, you know, the Victorians, the Melburnians, they're really getting out there. They're trying to look after themselves. They've spent a long time without being able to 
spoil themselves mm. or entertain or be with their friends. Mm. And I think that that's really showing in our dining room tables at restaurants Fantastic. at the moment. So that's a positive thing and very, you know, I'm quietly positive that we're we're going to make it through and everything's going to be great. We just have to keep on working at yep. it. We've dug a hole. We just have to re- yep. refill it in and totally. rebuild. And Melbourne, my parents came to Melbourne in 1960 and they left their homes to come and raise a family here in Melbourne. And I'm not going to let that hard work go to waste because we love it and we thank them every day that we grew up here. Mm. It's a beautiful part of the world. And, you know, it's not going to go to waste. Mm. It's It will be that international city and that great city with the great hospitality and and lots of other things, you know, the arts, the the theatre, the beautiful sport, the going to the MCG. Good, on, I mean, my it's God, it's good. fantastic. Tell me, so I'm not going to let that go to waste. We're going to work hard. I love it, Guy. Tell me, you mentioned teams before. Cohesive teams in restaurants, I imagine, would be mission critical to a successful restaurant, although I think they're few and far between. You know, where the chef's talking to the waiters, the waiters are talking to the bar staff. You know, you talk about the toilets being maintained so they're good for every customer that goes through. You've got that going. What's the secret to it? Because, you know, just to back that question up, so many business owners I speak to, what's your number one problem in business? Staff, staff talking to each other and knowing what the left hand, the right hand's doing. How are you kind of well, mastering we, that? Well, we, um, well, it's, I wouldn't say mastering it, it's a constant maintenance. That's what I believe it is. Um, You can't think for a minute, we're done. It's great. Let's just let it roll. Literally every day we have a service brief before, and I'm sure most good restaurants would do the same thing. There's a service brief before every service where the chefs and the waiters come together. Everyone is involved and you go through the day's business, what's going to happen, what's on the menu, what may be on the specials, where the oysters have come from, and also maintenance issues. Like we had this problem yesterday, this is what happened, how could it have been handled better? And we talk about cohesion a lot. We preach it virtually. I think every guest that walks into our restaurants or our venues is an opportunity for us to show them what we can do. If we're not doing our best or trying to do our best in a genuine, positive manner, then we're wasting that opportunity. And you talked about marketing. Now, people will go crazy spending a lot of dollars on marketing and and that's great. You've got to do some stuff, right? Yeah. But for me, the biggest form of marketing is taking that guest and showing them what you can do. Because when they go out there, they're going to be the biggest microphone for your business. They really are. And when it comes from them, the third party, people will just believe it much more than it's coming from you. Well, th- okay, let's talk about customer experience because that's essentially what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Now, how would you define customer experience? Every touch point's important, whether you're booking online or you're making a simple phone call, old-fashioned style. You've got to be treated with the utmost of respect. The whole thing, I, I, I say genuine a lot because genuine is important to me. You can make mistakes. People do make mistakes. Mm -hmm. But if you are genuine in the way you're trying to fix it, if you're caring in the tone of your voice, because you are caring, not just pretending, because people will pick that up very, very quickly. You have to actually be caring, have it in the tone of your voice, and you can't be the gatekeeper. You're trying to help that customer as much as you possibly can. So as an example, if you need to move somebody from an 8 o'clock to a 7.30 because they're wanting an 8 o'clock, but you know you need to movement because we can't have everyone arriving at the same time because then the guest experience will be terrible. So we need to manage our bookings that way. But rather than being a gatekeeper and saying, no, you can't have eight o'clock, 
I can give you 7.30, you can say exactly the same thing by saying, look, we've got a lot of arrivals at 8 o'clock. It would be much better for you if you got here at 7.30. Is that okay? Can you do that? Mm -hmm. And then you've got somebody, you've won them over. Of course they'll help you. They'll say, of course, if it's better for me and better for you guys, I'm going to help. But if you put up that wall and say, no, I can't give you 8 o'clock, then you've lost them straight away. So turn a negative into a benefit really is what you're saying. Absolutely. Yes. You're trying to help them. So you've got all these touch points that you, I love the term touch point, which is basically any moment, I call them also moments of truth, where it's, it's a moment where that customer, that guest has an opportunity to decide, hey, this is an unreal experience or gee, it's it's lacking a bit. Absolutely. And there's a lot of touch points from the moment, say, to deciding on what restaurant to eat in, to booking it, mm-hmm. to actually arriving, to dining, to leaving. I mean- there might, there's probably a hundred touch points. Maybe even, maybe even more. more. Maybe even more because you've got that interaction with, you know, front of house staff going on. Um, you've got, as we said before, right from the point of the booking and you you mentioned it, even just deciding where you're going to go. There are so many different touch points. Even when somebody gets up from their table to go and, and make a phone call and then they come back and find their, their place perfectly set again when they come back. You know, things like that. People may not notice you know, or make a comment about it, but it's subliminal. They'll, it oh, goes yeah. in. It goes in. And I think if you come back and your you serviette's messed up and you you will notice that. Yep. You may not notice it's perfect again, but you will notice if it's messy. Mm-hmm. And kind of at that level, there's an expectation of that. And so I think that you just got to go through and you got to do it often as well. You can't, again, it's not a set and forget. You've got to continually monitor it, continually go through it and continually question it. All the time, and as we said before, it's never perfect. I think one of the worst things about my personality is that I'm never really satisfied. And Obsessive. It, it's a, it gets a bit like that. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. and so people start to get a bit annoyed with me sometimes. But if you're not questioning it all the time, then you're not improving it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where you've got to be. If you're a good person in your business and you care about your business, you've got to question yourself. You've got to question the business. You've got to question, is there a better way of doing this? What Just because we've done it like this for five years or 10 years doesn't mean it's the best possible way. And you know what? Listening to your team as well, because you get people that come in, might be some young person that hasn't worked that long in their lives, but they go, oh, hang on, I got a better idea. Well, they're seeing it through fresh eyes. They're seeing it through fresh eyes, exactly. So you're actually paying a person to be there and help you. And if you turn your back on that, you're being silly because you're wasting your money. You Mm. should take that on board. One of the things establishments like Florentino do so well just from a marketing point of view, is what I call the one percenters. Those little things that individually, they don't make a lot of difference, but add it up. You know, I say one and one equals 11. Yeah. And it's yeah. like, you know, checking the toilet, folding the napkin when someone goes to the loo. And they're wonderful. They're things that get talked about too. And there's so many marketing case studies of businesses who attend to the one percenters. And as a result, you know, businesses say, oh, the best marketing we do is word of mouth. I'd say, well, word of mouth results in the great product and great service. And it's actually those one percenters that do it. Do you have some kind of way of encouraging your staff or are you always, always looking for these little opportunities to surprise and delight? Well, our people, they're very good. They're very switched on. And what we encourage is that they think about those things. You know, it's sometimes really simple things that just you go a little bit above and beyond. Um, I remember, recall there was uh, a table having dinner in the grill and they had to go to a show. This is before, you know, theatres got closed down and whatever. They had to go to the show and they were really in a hurry because they said, oh, we have to pick up our tickets by a certain time at the box office. 
So we really have to go. We haven't got time for coffee. We haven't got time. So one of my guys, out of their own volition, she just said, look, I'll go and pick up the tickets for you while you have your coffee. Brilliant. So she ran up the road. Wasn't far. You couldn't do this every time because, no. you know, but she just th- thought to herself, I'm going to do this. She ran up the road, picked up the tickets for them, brought them back. By the time she got back, they'd had their coffee, finished their dessert properly in good time. They grabbed their tickets, paid the bill, walked up the road, walked into the theatre. So little things like that. And that, that, you can that just, crowd's still telling their well, friends. Well, they would be because it was they were so appreciative of the fact that that had happened. So you can have little things like that happen, but inbuilt in your normal day-to-day product that you do, you can have these wonderful, magical little moments that stick in the memory. You know, one of the things people comment, I don't know if it's really that important, but people comment about our little stools upstairs that, you know, ladies put their handbag on so they're not putting them on the ground and people tripping over them and their beautiful handbag, you know, getting Mm -hmm. soiled on the floor or whatever. So little things like that. You know, our sourdough bread, I reckon, is a really beautiful thing that people appreciate. It's just made so lovingly and so caringly and takes like three days to make. And the guys, you know, at the moment are really firing in the pastry section and they're doing some beautiful things. You know, we're making Anzac biscuits this week for the cellar bath. You know, just little things that go, oh, it's it's thoughtful. It's just thoughtful. And, and you know what, Guy? All these ideas don't actually cost a lot of money. No, Having no. a stool to hang your handbag off doesn't cost a no. lot of money. Having someone run up and get the tickets for someone else doesn't cost no. any money. No. Maybe, you know, 15 minutes of yeah. wages that could be... It was 10 minutes and, and, probably, and yet yeah. so many businesses don't do it and it's frustrating. Well, I like the idea and of doing might, it. Sorry, people might think, oh, yeah, but this is five-star restaurants and they should be doing that because people are paying top dollar, but it, it, it's, I, that's I walked wrong in, thinking. I walked into a shoe shop the other day with my son, Carlo, to buy a pair of runners. Look, I'm wearing them right now. Very nice. comfy, Gee, very comfy. Fa- uh, sexy, yeah, yeah. Very fashionable runners. Yeah. And I tell you what, we left there thinking, oh, my God, that's next level service. Wow. It was so good. Well, my next question was so describe good. a customer experience outside of your, your establishment. Well, I got to what tell happened? you, that was, that was the most – we walked in there. We were greeted by three different people like, hi, how you going, guys? Hi, how you going there? I was walking in talking about – Asics, the brand of runners, to my son, one of the young ladies overheard us and said, over here, gentlemen, and pointed to the shelf with all the Asics on it. And I said, are you reading my mind? What's going on? It was just so beautiful. The experience was so beautiful. They were friendly. They were up. They were positive. She upgraded me to the more expensive pair of Asics, which is what I want my team to be doing. She did her job, right? And we went to the counter. It was smooth. It was simple. It was, I didn't waste any time in there unnecessarily waiting for things. It was, it was superb. That's that's the other thing too. Can I give them a plug? Totally. It was the Foot Locker in Burke Street, in the mall. They were great. And I'll go back there again. Yeah. And I will tell people And you won't look at the price. You, you don't, price, price is not irrelevant. Price is not, we as a business model, I think in all businesses, but in particular in hospitality, we need to stop devaluing our product. That is the most ridiculous thing that we can be doing right now. Now is the time to put value on our product. Say, this is what our product is worth. We're going to be competitive, but we're not going to chase the dollar. We're going to give you value for money. Mm-hmm. 
but we're going to give it to you in ways that are meaningful. We're going to give it to you in ways where you go, wow, I want to go back there and spend more money on that product. That's my philosophy. That's our family's philosophy. And I think if we start chasing the market downwards, we're not doing anybody any favors because we need to comply. We need to pay all our people properly. We need to look after farmers that do a good job. So we need to pay them properly. Mm -hmm. They have to live too. And they've got kids they've got to send to school. And if they're rearing beautiful creatures and doing great things for us so that we can showcase this beautiful products, then they have to be respected. They have to be looked after. So if you do all these things and you do them well, then there's a value on that product. And the end user will understand that as long as they get their value for money. And time is important to people. That's one of the most important things, I think. They don't want to waste their time. So if they're paying a little bit more for a great time, I believe I would take that every time rather than take a risk on wasting a night out with friends or a night out with my missus or a night out with my loved ones. Mm. You know, you don't want to take that risk because time is really crucial these days. We're Mm. all working harder than ever before. We need to value that time. Couldn't agree more. Guy, I went out to my listeners to say, look, I'm chatting to this restaurant legend and they've gone, geez, can we ask him a question? And I, they said, I said, absolutely, yes. So I've got a few questions from them. Can I fire them sure, far away? Sure. Ted Argyle says, what's your process for creating a point of difference in such a competitive marketplace? So I guess I'll add to that, you know, let's say you're opening up a new restaurant. You've got to create a personality around it and make sure that personality oozes through every part of that that restaurant. Is that the way you create a point of difference or is there something else? Well, I think, If you're creating a new product, I think it needs to be a reason for that product. You know, so for example, when we opened up in Perth at Garum with the Western, which is fantastic. I'll be going back there again in a couple of weeks, which is great. We're able to travel back there and all that. And um, they're reopening more and more shifts now, which is good. But when I went there and we looked at the site, it was this beautiful, it's called Hibernian Hall, the, the site that it's in. It's this beautiful sort of Italianate architecture. It, Hibernian is the name of the Irish that the ancient Romans used to call the Irish. So that's why it was named Hibernian Hall because it was like a, a place for Irish immigrants as a community centre for Irish immigrants and so forth. And um, it had this wonderful bones that spoke of Italianate sort of Roman style architecture. And it just came to us. We needed to make this a Roman restaurant. So it instantly had that personality. It had a point of difference. It wasn't just a place to go and eat. It was a place to go and experience something which was a little bit more unique than that. So it was, the angle was the Roman and garum is the ancient Roman fish sauce that the ancient Romans created and used to use in a lot of their cooking. So we were thinking it needs to be a Simple name that just says it's Roman, Garum is what we came up with. And that influences everything from the menu to… All the way through the wine selection, the menu, the way we baked our bread. We don't serve butter with our bread. We serve a thing called moratum, which is a like a cheese and herb kind of dip for the mm-hmm. bread. We researched the bread. Then the ancient Romans used to bake them in round loaves. They, the, the only reason I know is because there was a fossil found in, in Pompeii of the actual bread. Um, How so, good's Pompeii? No. Oh, Fantastic, oh, fantastic. Pompeii. One yeah. thing I noticed about Pompeii when I was there was that we haven't actually changed that much as society. You know, we have electricity now, but it seemed like 
even walking down those empty streets, some of those little- They had everything, the butcher, the, the restaurants. And the, that, those big yeah. holes in the benches where the pots were in case you want to get some takeaway on the way, you know, it's incredible. It's very very advanced culture. Very No, that's great. It's great. And you're talking about point of differences and that's how you create them, just by having a concept that's going to, you know, resonate with people and go, oh, yeah, I get it, you know, and, and that creates a little point of difference. So it's not just- Another eating house, you know, which is... Okay, and when we did a pre-interview, you're a very positive guy and you said, let's talk positively. I, I, and pull me up here if you don't want to go down this path, but there are a lot of restaurants out there that don't have a point of difference. They cram a lot of stuff onto the menu. There's no theme. There's no defined personality. What do you say to them? Well, I'm not here to teach. I think I, I might have used this this you, term you with you. I'm not here to teach other people how to no, suck I'm eggs. Not, I'm not That's, asking you to get on your soapbox no, and say there's I'm, a whole lot of in our industry that get it wrong. All, all I can say is that I think that you need to have things which are a little bit more resolved. I think from our point of view, from our business model – and I speak of us because that's what we do. We need things to be more resolved. Like Ombra, our salumi bar is a salumi bar and takes its theme from, you know, the beautiful little Chiquetti bars in the Veneto in Verona in, you know, around beautiful. those areas. My mum was born in Verona and it's called Ombra because Ombra um, means shadow in Italian. Ombra means shade. And the legend goes that you know, well, there's a couple of different versions. I'll give you one versions. The Trattorias of the Venator, it's a word from the Venator. And, you know, you'd say, the old men would say, in the old days would say, let's go for an ombra, which means get out of the sun, but it meant have a small glass of wine. So Brilliant. an ombra is the, what they refer to as a small glass of wine. And we have those little glasses. You can have an ombra, you can have an ombra of beer, you can have an ombra of wine or whatever, but obviously we have proper glasses as well. But the whole concept came from that world and we have a really good pizza in there, 48-hour fermentation on the dough, very serious about it. It feels like you could be in a little Chiquetti bar in Verona or in Venice or something. It feels like that. It's got those bones in it. It's tiny. It's pokey. It's a little bit grungy-ish. It's got some lovely leather kind of cushioned upholstery on the wall. It just feels nice and it's got that lovely theme about it, that feel about it. What you've identified, Guy, is story. It's got a story you to it. You just identify story. Timbo, you, I can call you Timbo you can, it says mate, that there on the screen. The screen. Yeah. Um, look, it's all it's story. story. You got Tell to me a story, story. I'll buy whatever it is you're selling me. You're 100% right. And that goes down to, it's got to be a real story. Real story is easy to sell. If it's not a true story, then it's really hard to sell. Yep. But, you know, like today we've got these two magnificent suckling pigs that arrived from Scottsdale Farm in Tasmania. They came onto the bench. They've been ethically farmed, they're a beautiful creature. We cut them up today. That's a story. Mm. You know, that's a story yep. because, you know, when- Bit of a sad story, but I- Well, no, they, they had a happy life. <laughs> I get it. Just one bad day. That's one bad day. Just we're we're all going to have that day. day. <laughs> Tell me, I, you know, I got sucked in. I didn't get sucked in. I bought I bought an old bucket at, the, at a market around the corner from me on Sunday, just gone. It's a beautiful old wooden pail. And I'm looking at it. It was from this sort of French country stall at the local market near my home. And I liked the look of it, but I wasn't necessarily compelled to buy it just because I liked the look of it. And then the lady came up who, who had the stall and she said, that is off an old French farmhouse oh, in the French countryside. She had you at French farmhouse. She had it at French farmhouse. She said, I don't know how many wells it's been down, but it's been down a lot. of. So I'm going, okay, this bucket's been now down wells. I've never even seen a well. So at that point, I'd been sold. But then she said, 
I'm not sure whether it's seen one or two world wars. And I'm like, you've got me. I don't care how much that bucket is. I'll have it. Uh, and I got that bucket, you know. Tim. And then, then she told me that, you know, you could plant an orchid in it and look amazing. <laughs> and it's like, it's like, again, I didn't, the price was irrelevant. Because she, she saw just, you coming down the road. She <laughs> yeah, saw yeah. you coming. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, well, so the, said so the man with three holes in front of him. <laughs> boom, boom. Daniel Monday. He asks, and Daniel's a long-time listener of this show. In fact, he opens spas in uh, five-star hotels around the world. So his, his question is quite interesting. You're opening a new restaurant where no one knows your name. What would you do to get people in the door? Mm, that's interesting. Well, again, all of the above that yes. we mentioned, have the story right, have a concept that you can sell. But you've got um, to get that out. You've got to get that out. Yeah. Well, there's ways of doing that these days, and it's obviously the social media is really important. Laura Dana works timelessly on that. And I might um, just add, sorry, I might add to Daniel's question because, and, and you're not Guy Grossi, you're me, having yeah, a crack at a restaurant, opening well, a restaurant. I think, um, you know, you've, you've got, got a head start. To, I mean, it's taken 40 years to get that head start. So that's how long I've been actually working myself. And my father came here in 1960, as I said before, and he was a chef. So I guess there was time there before that as well. But yeah, I've been standing in the kitchen now for 40 years this year, gone. So it does take time. No wonder you bought some new runners. Yeah, I needed new runners. <laughs> it takes time to build goodwill. I don't think anything can happen overnight. And to go into a business with that sort of thought that, oh, it's just going to fire, you know, it's probably a bit naive. Some places will and do because they hit the nail right on the head. Location's important, picking the right location, getting the right site for the concept that you're wanting to do, making sure the concept is something that's sound and the marketplace will like. All those things are boxes that need to be ticked. But then it's also about establishing yourself as a a business person, as a restaurateur, as, you know, a shopkeeper. And there's many different ways of doing that. And that's through, you know, media, traditional media, maybe getting on a couple of the morning breakfast shows, things like that to actually show your wares, stuff like that. I you think know, one really of helps. Frustra- and you don't need to comment on this. I welcome your comment, but you don't need to, because it's a bit of a negative comment. But there is, I see again, so many restaurants opening up and cafes opening up and they spend a lot of money on fit out they spend a lot of money on the branding. They spend a lot of money on all that stuff. And then the last meter they forget. And that last meter is obviously probably involves a person. And it's just, it all falls apart. And it's mm. just so, so I, I just find it very sad. No, it, it can be sad, especially if somebody's put their hard earned money into yeah. a business and spent money on fit outs and they're paying rent. Of course, it's sad yeah. if it doesn't work. Nick Horton asks How do you deal with customers who complain even though they are out of line? Well, I think every complaint is, again, an opportunity to win a customer and to win them for life. Some of our greatest guests and greatest customers that really support us have come from complaints and the way we've genuinely handled it. I think if people become obnoxious and rude, then you need to sort of be honest with them and pull them back into line. There's there's no need for a customer to be behaving badly with any of my team because my team if they've stepped out of line, they'll they'll get it from me. They don't need to get it from a customer. And I don't think anybody should be behaving terribly anyway. I think people need to be good to each other. It's, it's this one thing we've learned in the last 12 months is that, you know, life is short and we need to be kind and good and generous with each other as a business, but also as a community. Sometimes, you know, we're in a business which when you think about it, so many things could go wrong. We've got people from different 
demographics that come along. We've got people that have had trouble in their working day, people that have had trouble in their lives. Mix that with a bit of alcohol and, you know, you could get yourself, you, I'm surprised, you know, things run so smoothly, <laughs> yes. to be honest, because it could be a recipe for disaster. But we're supposed to be professionals. We're supposed to be able to manage that, handle those situations, calm those situations down. But again, I would say that handling complaints in a professional and dignified manner, and if you do handle it really well, efficiently and genuinely, again, I go back to that word, mm-hmm. and with integrity, integrity is really important. And if you have done the wrong thing, you have made a mistake or you've done, you know, you compensate somehow, doesn't have to be with money or invite people back in, but sometimes a simple apology is all that's necessary. And please, when you come back, let me know. I'd love to buy a glass of wine or I'd love to say hello, yep. you know, that sort of thing. I think you can really win customers that way by handling it really, really well. Is the customer always right? Look, mate, none of us are always right. You know, none of us are always right. <laughs> I can tell you four examples of when I, when I was wrong today. Today, yeah. But um, I think letting people know in a dignified manner that actually, in actual fact, but if somebody's at a table and they're with a bunch of people and they're telling you this wine isn't what they've ordered, but the actual fact they did, the worst thing you could do is say, no, you're, you're, wrong. you're wrong. You're wrong. That's the wine you ordered mm-hmm. and be be shit about it. Yeah. You know, yeah. you just say- Red rag to a not a, not a problem. You know, I'll bring the wine list back and we'll see what you actually wanted. Sorry about that. Yeah. And then he goes, I, I want this one. And you can then show him, oh, it is the one. Or you can say, you know, we'll bring you the one you want and bring him another bottle. And there's no importance in being the right person in that situation. You're better off to let them believe that they were right in the first place. The best book written on this is called Hug Your Haters by Jay Bayer, and it is awesome. And it, it says what it does. Like, hug them. It is the best opportunity yeah. to turn someone who's pissed off with you into a lifelong customer, and we don't get those I'll, opportunities I'll get enough. you to text me the title of that book because I it will. sounds like it's right up my alley. Craig Helmer says, how do, you, how do you have all your restaurants perform as if you were there every night? Now, you sort of explained first up that, you know, your restaurants are geographically within a pretty close yeah, proximity. but I still have but- to have great people that can do it. Like, if I don't go back to work tonight, my team needs to be able to perform. And I'll give you an <laughs> – this is a funny thing. I heard an interview with Alan Ducasse. I don't know if you know Alan Ducasse. No. He's a really super famous chef in France, but he's got restaurants in other parts of the world now. He's got heaps of restaurant consultancies around France and around the world, and he runs top restaurants, Monte Carlo, Paris, all over the place. He's no duffer. (laughs) No, he's been around for a long time. And I heard him in an interview once, and the journalist said, so who cooks when you're not in the restaurant? And he looked at him and said, the same people who cook when I am in the restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. So, true. so in other words, like you're not going to be able to be there 24-7. You just can't do that. It's not physically possible and it's not actually healthy for you no. or for the business. The business needs to have you there and needs to have the presence and that's true and I probably spend – I spend a lot of time in my restaurant. I really do. But being able to do a bit of travel or to – just have some rest or to go off and work on the more strategic side of the business from time to time is really important. So if I'm here with you and my business is going to fall apart because I'm not there, then it's not a good model. No. It'd be a very stupid model. It would be. Do you find time to innovate? Literally, like, well, go away, you know, for a couple of well, days. as I said to you, the, that trip was yes. one of those, that was a chunk and 
I said to Carlo, Carlo, we've got to be doing this every year. We've got to pick, even if it's just for a week or two weeks, we'll pick a spot in the world and just focus on that. We'll go to the South Americas one year. We'll go to Asia one year. We'll go to just pick a spot. Don't make it too broad. Otherwise, you're racing around too much. And just, you know, eat in different restaurants and just experience different marketplaces. One of the great things about that trip was just going to different markets in different parts of the world and all of that, parts of Europe, because mm-hmm. we're, we're in Spain, France, Italy. We even hopped over to Crete for a, a friend of mine who was having his birthday there. So it just broadens your horizon. Mm-hmm. It wakes you up. But that's inspirational and that's really, it's how you innovate, I think, by seeing different things. Do you look outside your industry for ideas or are you just... Oh, I think outside our industry, definitely, you know, you think about all the things that are connected to our industry, people that grow stuff, people that raise animals, people that grow grapes. That's all outside but kind of connected. Mm -hmm. But also I gave you the example of the shoe store and, you know, both Carlo and I walked out of that experience thinking, wow, that was good. That put a fire in our belly. Let's Mm -hmm. go back and do something productive. Like let's talk to our team about that. And I actually did tell them the story and told them how good it was. And I believe that you can find that kind of inspiration in any business. And some businesses are just great. You feel it from, you know, they could be selling telephones. They could be selling anything. It doesn't matter. But you feel it from the first interaction you have, from the moment you walk into the store or from the moment you you interact with them, whether it be over the internet or whatever it is, mm-hmm. you feel the, you know, that genuine want to serve and to do it well. You've got a very strong personal brand, Guy. I want you to reveal your strategy here. You've got great cookbooks. You've done some great TV series. Mm-hmm. You've got great restaurants. You speak at events. Is there a strategy there? Why, yeah. do you, why do you do all – is it to promote your restaurants? What's behind it? Okay. We always knew what we were about as a brand. As I said, we've been in the business for a fair amount of years now. But as we expanded, we realized that we had to put some parameters around it. We had to identify it, not to ourselves because, well, we kind of know why we're doing this. But when we're trying to tell others, you can't just say, oh, we kind of know what we're doing this. So – we kind of built it into, you know, a document, which I wish I had right here now in front of me, but I'm going to do the best I can, mm-hmm. which is about, we call it our filter. And why is it that we do what we do? Well, I mentioned family and my father and my mother coming out here in 1960. We have things in our culture that we do, like the um, tomato making day, you know, in the winter we make the salami day, all of this stuff is not just something that comes and goes just so you can have tomato in the wintertime or salami to eat, you know, through the summertime. It's things that you do because it's innately embedded in your culture, right? Mm -hmm. And it's what we do because- It is the culture. It's the culture. It's part of the culture, eating on a Sunday lunch, having family, you know, when friends come to the door, making sure the kids, quick, get the door, get the door, welcoming them into the house and making them feel great. I remember even when I was a kid growing up, you know, the best china would come out when you had guests, yeah. even though we probably ate off bloody Did nasty. you have a special room in your house that you weren't allowed There's, to go there into? There was, was a it? special room in the house. <laughs> there was that. We didn't go as far as keeping the plastic over the divan, though. Well, that we, came we, off, we did, which, anyway. which was quite um, progressive, I thought. <laughs> yes. But we had all of that. And so- why do we do what we do? Is it to sell some food and some beverage? Is it to make a bit of money? Is it to 
The answer to that is no. Making money in the business is a result. It's a way of keeping score. It's just a mechanism to say, okay, yeah, we did well financially that month and we didn't do well that month. But the actual reason for the business existing is for the promotion of that culture, for keeping that culture alive, kicking it forward to the next generation, making sure that the people of our community come to a place where they can experience that culture. That's what we're selling. Mm. That's our filter. We push everything through that filter. Does it fit through that filter? Yep. Great. It do flies. It. We can do it. Does it not fit through our filter? No, we can't do it. doesn't fit through that filter. You come from a wonderful culture <laughs> in, in, in Italy and I'm wondering, are there things over there that you would love to bring here? And I'll give you one that I would love to see here, which is, and we're not a stand-up coffee drinking culture here. We like to sit down and take our time, but- I loved all those little cafes you know, on every street throughout Italy, main streets, back streets, mm. where you go in, you're given a shot of coffee, you might pick up a pastry with a little bit of tissue mm. paper, mm. you whack it down, you say hello to someone and you're out of there. And I would love to see that here. Is there anything, would you, or is there anything else you'd love to see brought out of Italy? I think that sort of thing is starting to happen a lot more often, Tim. Like our celibar certainly is that. I take my coffee like that, one quick shot and then I'm off. Yep. And- it's an experience in itself as well. And in a way, it's kind of, and I'm, I'm digressing from your question, but I will get back there. In a way, it's kind of more important that you have that, you know, really beautiful interaction, that experience with that five-minute shot of coffee because it's only five minutes. Yes. Then we, short and sharp. Yeah, short and sharp. So it's got to be really pleasant and really good and you don't have much time to perform so that you've got to make sure that works and it's good and it's easy and simple for them and works out well. So that's really important. But I, I think that cultural sort of thing is changing. What would I like to see come from Italy? Look, I think we travel there. We we have a lot of stuff here that is actually comparable. We, we're even starting to make small goods, which it's it's evolving a lot and it's mm -hmm. getting really good. I think, uh, you know, we're still buying prosciutto from overseas, which is great that we can get it. Some of the cheeses that are being made overseas are fantastic in Italy, but again, we're doing really good work here in that, in that area as well. So I just think keeping that culture really sound, keeping it pure, I think that's what I'd like to see much, much more of moving forward. And we're doing it already, but just keep it right on edge, cutting edge. Ben Mignatoli. Italian, clearly, asks, what do you look for in new staff, attitude or experience? Attitude above experience any day of the week. Oh, man, I can't emphasize that enough. Great if it comes with a bit of experience. Fantastic. We'd need a little bit of experience to get people moving and so forth. But if the attitude's right, we can train them. And if we can't, then we're not doing our <laughs> he job He says properly. exasperatedly, you yeah. could go home via Foot Locker in Burke Street, take those three people, train them up. They might be your best customer Absolute, service representatives absolutely. ever. Absolutely. Guy, I just want to finish up by talking about well-being. I say in every episode, I see a lot of tired business owners, a lot of business owners working very hard. You're not going to fade anything, <laughs> find anything new here, mate. Oh, here we go. Well, there's not a right or wrong answer here. Do you believe in work-life balance? Is, is work your life? What do you do to switch okay. off? Let me answer that. Might be very quick. Yeah. <laughs> uh, look, I believe in work-life balance. I really do. I just don't You can't even say it. Probably you said work-life balance. Work-life balance. <laughs> I'm, I'm slewing my words. I haven't even had a drink, I promise. Later. I, I believe in work-life balance, but I just don't practice it very well. I'm not very good at it. Do you wish you did? Uh, look, sometimes I think I could have You look very been, well. I could have been, I feel good. I feel good, but I, I just, I feel energetic because I work and I move a lot. 
my job is quite physical, so it does keep me moving, um, which is great. At one point, I was very heavy and I've lost a lot of weight, which has made it a lot more enjoyable for me to work and be energetic and all how, of that. How did you get that? How did uh, you get heavy? Just, oh, just by eating and drinking. Stop moving? Being a glutton. No, no, just being a glutton. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. I'm a chef, so you have to taste things. True. But it doesn't mean, you know, you gorge yourself with yeah, something. Yeah, you yeah. taste things with a teaspoon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These days I'm a have lot a more. Spittoon. Yeah, these days I'm a lot more sensitive about it <laughs> because I don't want to go back to that weight again. It's just harder. So I think when you talk about well-being, uh, there's sort of things that are important. I don't smoke. I haven't for years. I gave that up. Um, but for years I did smoke. And I think that that was a really, po- I, I know that was a really positive thing to do. So that was good. Just trying to keep in shape is good. But I do work many hours, but I enjoy that as well. I think, How many hours a week? Oh, I reckon it varies between 60 and 80, maybe sometimes more when it gets really, really busy. Mm-hmm. Um, when we came straight back out of lockdown, I was, my brother-in-law and myself were probably doing closer to 90 hours a week. That Jeez. was tough. That was really I, tough. I suppose as a family business, you know, one of the things with the work-life balance, as some business owners whose families aren't in the business, means they don't get to see their family. You know, so, but for you, you're actually getting to see your family see, at work. I see my kids more now as young adults than I did when they were growing up. Because yeah. when they were growing up, I was always at work and it was that was every night to him and every day. And mum had to do everything for them, take them to school, to yes. go to the sporting events, go to everything. I went to very few things. Mm. Um, you regret but, that? Oh, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. it would have been nice to be more involved. But, you know, I think that they still love me and respect me, you know, um, they're both come out great kids and they work hard. Any chosen not to go into the business? I tried to point them in the direction of there's a lot of opportunity out there for both of them. Make sure that, you know, this is not just easy street. You've got to make sure you're going into the business because you really want to and they're because you can do anything you want to do. But both of them really, really wanted to. Carlo was, you know, avid to work on the floor. He just wanted to be Mm. front of house and – and he's great at it. So, you know, it's good that he's doing it and that he wants to do it. You know, he works very, very hard, as does Laurie Dana in different field. Although she's great at doing the floor as well, but she's more in communications and that side of stuff. Um, she's very, very good at all that. So that's the area that she's in. You can go anywhere in the world tomorrow, Guy, to have one dish and then you've got to come back and work the next day. Where is it and what is it? It's such a hard question to answer that one because there's so many things you'd you'd want to experience there really is but, but right now the way you are feeling right now all about- right right now i would i would like to go to a roman trattoria and have the best fettuccine carbonara that money can buy i would love it right <laughs> yes. now i haven't had lunch today so it my mouth's watering yeah. thinking about it yeah Oh, a carbonara. That is a great dish, isn't it? Absolutely. When Bacon, it's, cream. When it's done well. When it's done well. Right. When it's done well. Pancetta or guanciale, uh, no cream, no uh, cream. Really? Just the egg. I use I use a whole egg and an extra egg yolk. Yeah. you got to have um, either parmigiano or pecorino or a little bit of both. Black pepper, a little bit of salt, but you got to be careful because the cheek, the pig cheek can be quite salty. Mm-hmm. That just gets sautéed off. You make your mixture with your egg and... You put your saute off your pancetta, put the fettuccine in there, a little bit of the pasta water so it loosens it up, put your egg mix in, mix it till it's just, just starting to set yep. and then serve it, eat it straight away. That's the best carbonara ever. You can't put cream tubo in carbonara. I've got to show you how to make one. Yeah, I'd love you to do that. We should head off now? We can do it any time <laughs> you like. 
Guy, I've thoroughly enjoyed this. I know we went all over the place. and there Isn't we that probably, a good way to go? I think Isn't, it is. I, I think life's like that, Tim. It sure is. You know, we could have gone through. And so in 1963, a, no, no, you no. did this. and You're amazing at your job. You really are. You know that already. So I'm not going to piss in your pocket. But you don't get good interviews unless you know what to ask and how to ask it. So thank you very much for having me on, on your podcast. That's fantastic. Thanks, mate. Guy Grossi. Wow, I'll take that feedback every day of the week. Thank you, Guy. Hey, did you enjoy that? Are you now in a position to create the world's best customer experience for your beautiful business? Bloody well hope so. Hey, just a reminder, I've got some Pink Floyd news coming up shortly. But first, here's what grabbed my attention from that chat with Australia's leading restaurateur, Guy Grossi. Attention grabber number one. I love the story he told about the waitress who went that extra mile and picked up the movie tickets so her guests could enjoy their coffee and dessert and not be rushed. So easy. Didn't cost him anything. They'll talk about it forever. What are your one percenters? Attention grabber number two. I love how Guy goes about creating a personality for each restaurant he opens, then ensures that personality finds its way into every single touch point. That's how you create strong brands, team. Attention grabber number three. I love how Guy and his team are constantly refining the customer experience they create for each of the restaurants they own, as opposed to creating it once and simply rolling it out. Constant innovation is the key. Plus, he gives his staff the opportunity to provide ideas and new ways of going about things. I love that. Hey, I'd love to know what grabbed your attention. Hit pause and tell me by calling the Small Business Big Marketing Hotline on plus six one for you overseas listeners, 480-015-150. Just like listener Steve Noble did. G'day, Timbo. Steve Noble from Hugh Charles Clothing here. Loved your episode with Andrew McDonald of Ringers Western. Plenty of marketing gold. Like Andrew, we sell country rural style clothing. Also like Ringers Western, we started small but are growing quickly with no debt. All on a $500 website. Constant honest storytelling online and 24-7 customer service are our key. A 12,000 investment in February 2020 is now doing 40 plus thousand a month. All sales online so far, but have our first stall at an event this week. And based on Andrew's advice, we'll pursue that more in the future. Love the show. Listen to every episode. Keep up the good work. Thanks, mate. Bye. Amazing, Steve. You have a similar business to past guest Andrew McDonald of Ringers Western, and you started your business with a $500 website, as did he. That's a very small world. Everyone else, if you'd like to discover how to build a business on a shoestring budget, then do take a listen to episode 548. It was an absolute ripper, and it will probably save you a whole lot of dough. Okay, Pink Floyd news. You ready? This is big news for me because... I love Pink Floyd and I love the guy I'm going to tell you about. You know him. His name's Lockie Dolly. Lockie uh, wrote the opening jingle and the music bed to this podcast about seven years ago. He contacted me out of the blue. I've told this story on an interview I've done with him already. So I'll put that link in the show notes over at smallbusinessbigmarketing.com forward slash 550. Anyway, Lockie is the keyboard player for Australian music legend Jimmy Barnes. Lockie rings me three weeks ago and says, Timbo, I'm sitting on this news that I haven't been able to tell anyone for 12 months, but 
I am now the keyboard player for Roger Waters' Pink Floyd tour that happens in 2022 across North America and may well come to Australia. That's massive. Lockie Dolly is a fighter. He's a small business owner. He might be a superstar keyboard player and play for the big guys, but he's a salaried employee. He's got his own online training. He's a Hammond organ expert. He's the world's leading Hammond organ expert. He's put together e-course training around that, and he's a constant music entrepreneur. And look where it's found him. He's now going to be playing keyboards on stage with Pink Floyd's Roger Waters. <laughs> Such great news. And I'm going to get him back on the show in the coming weeks or months. I haven't got a timing on it yet. Uh, he's going to tell us exactly how that came about. But if you're a Pink Floyd fan like I am, look out for that interview. It's going to be awesome. Next episode, we chat with Kate Reed of Loon Croissantery, who in a past life, check this out, was an aerodynamic engineer for the Williams F1 team until she got sick with anorexia came back to Melbourne and started a bakery that was recently awarded the world's best croissant by the New York Times. I've tasted one. Unbelievable. God, gee. You're going to really enjoy next week's episode, I promise. Be sure to grab a copy of my book, The Boomerang Effect, over at smallbusinessbigmarketing.com. I'd love to hear what marketing is working for you, so please call the Small Business Big Marketing Hotline and leave me a message. I promise I won't answer the phone. Don't be scared. The number, 0480-015-150. If you're loving the Small Business Big Marketing Podcast, you'll find 549 more episodes on the listener app. And as has been the case for the past 4,380 days, aka 12 years, this podcast has been presented by me, Timbo Reed, and each week nailed together by producer Dave Zulawenski, wielding a large hammer and, of course, wearing safety goggles. You've got to watch that, you know, workplace health and safety stuff. Until next time, thank you so much for tuning in. May your marketing be the absolute best marketing. Bye for now. Listener.